Hello, hello. Today, I welcome somebody who is very, very special to me. We know with Mariusz personally, and I wanted to know him because he's doing extremely unusual job for me. He is a medical director of Psychosocial Oncology Hospital. So something that I thought I would rather die than do, and he is doing it, and he's happy to do that. I'm... Oh, yes, I'm happy, yes. So that is, I'm the medical director for Psychosocial College at the Todd Cancer Institute in Long Beach, California. And so I've been doing psycho, psychosocial ecology, uh, which means uh, supporting uh, patients emotionally for the past 37 years. So so that is, that's, has been my passion. So it is always wonderful to talk to you, Julia. Uh, thank you for inviting me today. It's absolutely my pleasure because I cannot wait to find out things that really bagging me because very often on Psycho Mama, people ask me to, to say a couple of words, how to support people, how to support parents whose children are sick. And to be honest, I never can answer this because I do not have knowledge or experience. And I'm the person, my, my son has three, is three and a half. And when last time he was sick and vomited, I just froze. I like I did not know what to do. It was so scary to me. So the reason why I admire your work so much, and the reason why it's so difficult for me to understand that you're voluntarily doing it, that you have people who are very, very seriously ill. And how do you manage to support them and not emotionally die or being in despair or being in depressed all the time it is sad when somebody is so sick and you're doing it yes the fact is that it is sad that someone is very sick uh, it is sad for the whole family but it is sad for their caregivers and also for the treatment team right uh, at the same time uh, i'm in quite privileged position because I had really great mentors and, and I was able to help patients feel better even in their most difficult moments of their lives. Uh, and that really got me hooked. Actually, psychiatry is not my first specialty. Actually, right after medical school, uh, our first uh, both my wife, then fiance, uh, and I, we did the residency in pathology. Mm. And I started doing, uh, and because I'm not really a pathologist material, you know, pathologists are quiet, you know, they can, they can be in their corner for the whole day. I had too much energy. So what they did, they were sending me to do thin needle biopsies from patients, right? And then we would analyze them under the microscope there and the malignant cells. And and when I was interacting with people, I noticed that they were really very stressed out. They were asking me, oh, do you know, doctor, is this cancer or not? And I was able to, with the knowledge they already had then, to help them calm down. And... Uh, despite the difficult situation and so much uncertainty. So I started running groups for cancer patients and their families as a resident pathology. Then I switched to radiation oncology. I realized pathology was not for me, so really quickly. Um, then I switched to radiation oncology and I 
continued doing that. And then my mentor, whose methods I had been using all the time for these groups, was Carl Simonton. Um, he told me, you don't want to be a pathologist or radiation oncologist. You want to be a psychiatrist. And I said, no, psychiatrist, I don't. I mean, I had really very bad, bad view of psychiatry. Uh, and he said, no, 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 just listen to me out. There is this guy in Washington, D.C. Uh, his name is Maxim Oldsby. He's the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Howard University. And, and you need to work with him. So that is how both Alexander and I, we, first we did our first part of residency training in New York, and then we moved to Washington, D.C., where we completed our psychiatry residency with Maxim Oldsby, who was... Um, one of the leading people in cognitive behavior therapy, possibly the most famous African-American psychiatrist. So almost as good as Stanford, right? <laughs> oh my goodness. Very different, very different. Yeah. Somebody who does not know Stanford is my dream. Did not come true yet, but one day, one day I'm going to go back. Um, so... How important it is for patient to feel good from mental perspective in order to for him to succeed in his oncology treatment. So, uh, you froze for a second, so I didn't hear the whole question. So I'm so. gonna repeat. So, how important is for patient who is oncology patient, so very serious one. How important it is for him to have good mental health? Oh, that is critical, actually. Um, so that is the the whole area of oncology is called psycho-oncology or psychosocial oncology. Um, because very early on, we realized that the, the psychosocial aspects of cancer are very important. And... Carl Samuelton was, was one of the leaders of the field. Already in 1971, he started requiring all his patients to go through a program that would address their emotions and, uh, uh, and you know, difficult feelings and uh, psychological aspects. But in 1973, he started requiring all their support people to participate in this program too. Because he notices that the not just what happens in patients' head is important, but also what other people around the patient are bringing in. So, so that and so that was, you know, uh, improved quality of life significantly. But he was also the first one to notice that it it might uh, not just improve how they feel. Uh, and how they function, but also may improve their life expectancy. Mm -hmm. And he was the first one to publish really preliminary uh, results from his uh, research. Uh, again, it was preliminary, so it, didn't, it was not randomized clinical trial. Uh, but it was very interesting, but unfortunately, medical establishment had difficulty accepting it. Um, and uh, was, he was criticized uh, quite severely. Uh, however, since then, there were five randomized clinical trials. 
that confirmed uh, these suggestions. Um, and there, so we know that, uh, of course, not everybody believes in that. It is not fully accepted knowledge. Some people consider this information as harmful for people to think that their mind can affect their outcomes. Uh, so that is, um, and so there is still discussion going on. Um, so do however, we have any hard data on this? So yeah, so there are five randomized clinical trials, yes. Uh, the first trial was actually done at Stanford. <laughs> uh, <laughs> David Spiegel. Uh, <laughs> and it has never been replicated, however. But you see, part of the problem maybe the people behind that study were impossible to replicate, uh, who set up the program and so on. Um, Yak Irv Yalom, and so the 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 other uh, part, the second randomized clinical trial. So these were women with metastatic breast cancer uh, in that sample. Then the second was with uh, um, uh, malignant melanoma at UCLA, uh, my backyard. <laughs> uh, so, so what exactly the study showed? What so do this, we have? So, so all those studies. So there was another study that was done by Barbara Anderson uh, at Ohio State University. There was uh, Thomas Kuchler uh, from Germany, from Kiel in Germany. And there was another one uh, from the lab of Michael Anthony from University of Miami. And uh, so so there there were studies. And what they, what they do show is, because Simon, when Simonton published his data, he, he noticed that, that you know, the median survival of his patients, we are talking only metastatic patients here in his study. We're living on average twice as long as patients who were uh, treated in other uh, best cancer centers that, um, uh, in the United States. And actually there is, there is a whole uh, uh, statistic that you can compare to, it is like a benchmark. Uh, and also, there was a much higher number of long-term survivors, people who either had no progression of disease or no evidence of disease at the end of, uh, of the study. Uh, and, and they also had improved quality of life, and for those who died, had improved quality of death. That is what Simonton uh, noticed. And indeed, the, the studies were showing very similar outcomes. Uh, and... Uh, these randomized clinical trials. And the the best design study of those, all of those, was by Barbara Anderson from Ohio State University. And uh, this was with breast cancer patients. Mm -hmm. And she looked at those patients because she did stage two to stage three uh, uh, patients and they went through her program. And then they, she looked at again, on those patients who had a recurrence. And the breast cancer recurrence, they happen, you know, 10, 15 years later. Uh, so, and what she noticed is that this, the skills that patients learned at the beginning of the study, very often many years earlier, uh, they were effective later on, that the patients had much less uh, distress, uh, had had much better support system, and their immune function was better. Right, there's an unnatural killer cell activity was better. So, 
so this is huge. And so, uh, what was so different about these people who functioned better, who healed better, who with disease just left and did not want to come back? What was the skills? What the, was the mindset of these people? And here's a trick, you see, <laughs> because the trick is that is not to think about the outcome. <laughs> so non-attachment to the outcome is a trick um, because you see, uh, and, and Simonton, even though he was the first one to notice the connection, he would always emphasize that the goal of this therapy is not extending of the life, of, of lives, right? Mm -hmm. It is improving the quality of life today. So all the skills that Simonton was teaching was how I can improve my quality of life right now. Because why it is so important? Because I'm getting immediate feedback, right? When I'm doing something, I don't know how it's going to affect me in, in the long run, but I know immediately if I am, am experiencing more joy, if I am uh, having more fun, if, I'm, if my quality of life is improved, right? So if I see that, that my quality of life is improving, I can, I can do it more. So I have like immediate feedback. So if there is any improvement of those interventions on longevity, it is only a byproduct of improved quality of life in the present moment. So the competence is to learn how to live well. Yeah, right now. Right now. Yeah, so not, the, not tomorrow, the... not in a month from now, not after I finish my treatment. Not when I complete my, I, I have better uh, PET scan or whatever. No, how so I can improve the quality of my life now. So something that uh, Tibetanians or Nepalese were saying for like hundreds of years, here and now, mindfulness. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So we basically, what you're saying, if you, um, if you not think about the result of your disease or your treatment and just concentrate what is it? How can you make yourself in the current situation make feel better? This will help you to lift up your moods, lift up your energy, and you have better ability to fight the disease. Yes, exactly. So, you know, this question, because when people are diagnosed with a serious illness, like cancer, right? Very often the first question they have, how long do I have? Right? Yeah. How long will I live? That is, yes. how long will I live? And this is a nagging question, but it is a very similar question to the question that the little kid has in the car when you are going for, you know, let's say to visit grandparents, right? And we are going to get stuck in traffic, right? And uh, which is in LA very common. And then, and then we are, and then the kid is, ah, are we there yet? How long? How long would it take? Yeah. When it, yeah. Yes, yeah. everything. Yeah. 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 yeah, exactly. When? Exactly. Exactly. So anybody who, who experienced the little kid who is impatiently asking you, are we there yet? Is, is exactly. That is attachment to the outcome, attachment to the result, attachment to the effect. I want to be somewhere. I, I, we have to be there in order for me to like be calm or whatever. So the kid does not enjoy the ride, right? Nobody actually enjoys the ride because of that attachment, the focus on the outcome. But if we are not there yet, where are we? Here. 
exactly and now right so so the focus on improving the quality of life now is is to shifting that question how long will i live to the question how will i live so so there that is a very different approach um and, and so we are moving from attachment to the outcome to non-attachment yes i want to live as long as possible but at the same time i know that it is not under my control i cannot control that um what i that i what i can influence is the quality of my life right now right so what i'm hearing is mix of buddhism and stoicism uh, maybe yes uh, actually it is cognitive neuroscience from me <laughs> i mean so i always feel like you know psychology is stealing always from from buddhism and from from uh, philosophy, so it's it is cognitive neuroscience, but generally, like Buddhists were saying it for years, non-attachment, attachment that what makes you unhappy, the attachment what makes you, uh, what makes you suffer. And Stoicism was always saying that um, you need to handle things as it is, here and now, and and um, and embrace it. So, uh, let's let's talk about it. Uh... You see, that is the difference between Maxi Maltby, uh, the one that, that was the chairman of psychiatry, with, and we did the, our residency psychiatry with him. Uh, he based his cognitive behavioral therapy approach on the function of the human brain. Right? Yes. The fact is that it is our cognitions, which is thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, but also opinions, also the things that we acquired not consciously or unwittingly, right? Because we have a lot of attitudes that we acquired unwittingly. Yeah. Uh, uh, all those things are actually, whenever something happens, those things immediately kick in and our emotional response is is filtered through that already. Yeah. So something happens, the... So A is an activating event, B is those cognitions, everything that's happen happening in prefrontal cortex, and C is our, the consequences of those cognitions, which is our emotional feelings, and D is doing, which is what we do as a result. Uh, and in, in, in Maltzby's approach, so that is the reason we title our book ABC of Your Emotions, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because that is if you... that I everybody recommend very easy read very interesting. So so the point here is that we want to uh, that we cannot change emotions. In order to feel differently, we first either have to think differently or act differently. So um, so that is that is his approach was called rational behavior therapy, and so. So that is, and that is very consistent with Buddhism because uh, Buddha apparently said that uh, with our thoughts, we create the world. Um, but it is not just Buddha, but also, uh, also Hippocrates around the same time. Hippocrates lived maybe a hundred years after Buddha. And he said uh, that it is with our uh, minds that we create all our tears, sorrows, as well as joys and pleasures. All our emotions, all these and all other emotions come from the mind and mind only. That is what 
but what Hippocrates said. Unfortunately, Aristotle, who was not a physician, uh, came later and saw the dying chicken and how his heart was flapping and thought that all emotions are from the heart and that is how we ended up <laughs> deluding ourselves, right? Um, so that was Aristotle. Um, sorry for giving you this. No, 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 so, that's interesting. So, so that is that. So yes, so we create our world with our thoughts. Now, very important, stoicism, right? That is what Albert Ellis and other cognitive behaviorists based their approach on stoicism, which is a philosophy. So, so Moseby and I as physicians, and also David Burns as physician and Simon Tull as physician, we prefer to base our approaches on on anatomy, on physiology, rather than philosophy, no. because philosophy no. may be... Yes. Uh, so, so if you are interested, you can look at... Uh, at, at I'm going to send you this paper on ABC of emotions. <laughs> uh, uh, it's, I think the title is ABC of uh, uh, um, action, ABC of uh, 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 emotions and actions or something like that. But I will send it to you which shows the cognitive neuroscience behind it. Because what happens is that we don't learn, emotional learning is not reaction learning. So it is not like we are learning how to react differently. Mm -hmm. Emotional learning is what meaning we give to external stimuli. Mm -hmm. right? So that, that, is, that is, and how it refers to cancer is what I'm thinking about cancer, right? What the meaning does it have? It's a culture we think terrible things about cancer. But in the United States, 20 most common cancers, regardless how advanced, are cured in 68% of people, right? Mm -hmm. So so you see, but people don't know that, right? And this is the you know, official statistics. Well, right? uh, but to be fair, Marius, that even if, like, I did not know this also, it's true, um, but cancer uh, is also cured in a way that is very exhausting for the body and for the mind. And, you know, so chances to die from cancer, no matter what, are bigger than from flu. So you just, uh, yes. it's scary. Yes, it is scary. So I'm not going to diminish that. You know, come on, I'm doing that all the time. Uh, so... Luckily, I have uh, I have pretty good tools thanks to my mentors. So, so now let's go back to the Stoics, right? Yeah. Um, Epicurus was one of the leaders of uh, of uh, Stoics, and he was he was to say people are not upset by things, but by the view they take of them, which really is similar thing or the identical thing, and. But there is a difference um, because you see uh, important difference because he was born a slave, right? And he could not he could not change things around him. He could not change the world he was living in, right? And so there, I think there is a significant part of stoicism that is defeatist mm -hmm. <laughs> that 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 um, um i think that 
that modern people, particularly in our cultures, we have much more influence on how the world is. So uh, there is an important thing that yes, we need to accept where we are, but also fight where we for what we want, where we want to be. And I think that in Stoicism, what I'm missing is that particular fight. So you believe, if I understood you right, that whoever we are, if we want to change it, we can. Yes. And here we we are here different. So can I share with you my story that how? It uh, created my belief that possibly not everything can we change. Oh, yeah, I don't say I'm not saying that everything, but definitely we are in better situation. Not mindset. I'm not also yeah. saying like if I want to be taller, I cannot change this. So of course. <laughs> Go ahead. I when I was living in Portland and I had my I had amazing boss who is like very beautiful, smart woman, and who was telling me once a story that that. Um, there are two friends, mm -hmm. black guy and a white guy. And this mm -hmm. black guy uh, once talking to this white and the white said, why are you always demeaning yourself? Mm -hmm. Why is it always you make yourself feel like you're somebody worse? We already have signs that prove that you're as smart as a white person, that you're as intelligent, that you're as capable, mm -hmm. like you, you are everything white people are, but you always have these things that you're demeaning yourself. Mm -hmm. And he said, you know what? If all your life somebody is telling you that two plus two is five, mm -hmm. then somebody will come to you and say two plus two is four. Mm -hmm. And you see that it's four. And you understand that it's four. And you even say that it's four. Mm -hmm. but deep inside, you still believe it's five. And I think I do believe that some very deep emotions or beliefs that we have, we still believe that it's five. And that even so we're going to say this, we're still going to feel that it's five. So, uh, so that is very, thank you very much for this. Uh, this is a very good example. So we need to also look at, uh, at, uh, uh, we need to understand what are the consequences of what we think, right? So Maltby developed these five rules for healthy thinking, right? And the rule number one is that healthy thinking is based on facts. Healthy thinking helps me to achieve my short-term long-term goals. Healthy thinking helps me to uh, protect my life and health. Healthy thinking helps me to handle most unwanted conflicts with others. And healthy thinking helps me to feel the way I want to feel. Yeah. And if you look at that belief that, yes, if I learned something very early on in my life and I cannot change it, because it has such a deep uh, effect on me, then I'm not going to be really having any motivation to try to change it, mm -hmm. right? And it's not going to help my survival. It's not going to help me to achieve my short and long-term goals. It is not going to help me, uh, you know, and first of all, it is not based on facts because we do know that that we can change even deeply seated uh, uh, foundational beliefs, uh, core beliefs or key beliefs, um, as well as uh, it is simply a process, problem process, and and then I may feel very differently, right? So, so here I, uh, uh, so, so yes, I can. See, I, I truly believe that as a culture, we created a culture that is oppressive to a lot of people, 
right? And mm, so I wanted to, I think this is appropriate that, that I see the difference between Stoic philosophy and the Mosby, for example, or, or my approach, because it, and, the, and I'm going to quote Angela Davis, right? And she said, I'm no longer accepting the things I cannot change. I'm changing the things I cannot accept. Mm-hmm. So, so I, so that is, I mean, I'm not fully agreeing with this because in order to change things, we need to accept where we are, right? But I think it is a very important uh, view that we, we can change things, that each of us needs to focus on, on the process of change. Not that it is going to be changed in our lifetime, but but we need to aspire to that change and work towards the change that maybe our children or grandchildren are going to reap. And we agree on this one, that we always have to aspire. But also the truth is that if you used to be an alcoholic and you get through the process of AA mm-hmm. and uh, you still cannot drink mm-hmm. because they say even if you believe that you can control, you still, you're always an alcoholic. You're just non-drinking alcoholic. And I, sometimes I believe that if you're born with this... Um, tendency to have depressive and demeaning um, mindset, you can learn how to control it better, but you always have to be careful not to, not to let yourself go. You're like an alcoholic for depression. So you let yourself get into the depressive thoughts and you just go down. Is it, does it make any sense or it's completely not true from perspective of physiology and how our mind works? So, uh, <laughs> I think that is. Are we depression I mean, junkie? Uh, okay, so let's 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 talk about. It. Um, so, uh, two things. Uh, we when you talk about alcohol, right? Very important. If you subscribe to the idea that if you have a drink or even if you get a drunk, that that is a slippery slope and that you are going to end up. Uh, you know, uh, in full relapse. First of all, you are going to act out what you believe, right? However, research does not confirm that. Uh, actually, it says that, uh, and there's most people quit drinking or quit smoking on their own without clinical help, right? Yeah. Uh, and without even going to AA. Uh, I'm not talking against AA. No, don't <laughs> don't take me wrong, but I'm saying that majority of people actually are able to quit addictive substances without uh, any professional help. I recommend that people get professional help because that is smoother, right? Because it is definitely uh, very complex. This addiction is really complex. So I definitely, if you are dealing with addiction, get help. However you may have so-called slip-ups and still go back on the wagon. So meaning you can still live sober life. Uh, and uh, actually there, it came out of my other mentor, Albert Ellis's program, which is uh, Rational Emotive Behavior Therapy. There is this whole program, Smart Recovery. And, and Smart Recovery is not... Uh, it's not necessarily focusing on abstinence, but definitely embraces a more modern approach 
of uh, uh, harm reduction, right? And um, on in, in, uh, uh, and analyzing relapses and implementing new skills, right? And that is and seeing okay, so relapse is an element of okay of or slip up is an element of learning, right? Because if if you are focusing only on abstinence, then then you have much many more failures. And as a culture, we are not good at dealing with failures. While fail by failing is part of being a human, right? So you can <laughs> so as long as you're a human, you will be making failures, you know. And you know when you are going to stop making mistakes? When you're dead. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like this that. is what we're trying to say all the time to parents and parents first. Like just by the fact that you're human, it means you're not capable of being perfect parent. You will screw up. You will make mistake. The key is like to apologize and try to do better. But it's obvious none of us will ever, ever going to be perfect parent. It's just we're just hoping our children is not going to spend hours and hundreds of hours on a psychiatrist's office or a psychologist's office and this is what we can hope for but we're definitely gonna screw up yeah exactly but you see in in the culture's mind there's no space for screw up for an alcoholic no <laughs> you see? Janet always thought that if you have relapsed like you just like you're relapsing so it's like you need to start everything from the beginning it's not like a diet you eat chocolate but then next day you can still eat salad and you're fine so in alcohol you cannot do this actually you can so so yes people should yes that. yes 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 you can and and also when we talk about we are talking about cognitive behavioral therapy of depression yeah, uh, and we know that cognitive behavioral therapy is uh, for depression is as effective as medications, uh, but uh, gives fewer relapses, right? So after successful treatment with cognitive behavioral therapy, fewer people relapse than after successful treatment with medications. I'm a psychiatrist, so I prescribe drugs. So don't don't take me wrong. I'm not anti-medications, right? But also, also I know how the human brain works. But I just beautiful... don't believe that medication without therapy to be honest can work can they well actually not just in, one of the most difficult mental illnesses that is to treat are is uh, obsessive compulsive disorder right yeah and we have and we have now data that even very severe obsessive compulsive disorder you have if you have really skilled cognitive behavioral therapist you can have as effective treatments with fewer relapses afterwards as and really unmatched medication that cannot be matched with medications. So so really my question is Maria Sheldon, can you have can you have only medication but no therapy and be cured? Be cured, I wouldn't call it cure because seventy five percent of people who who achieved remission in depression with medication, seventy five percent of them will have a relapse. While those who achieved full remission with cognitive behavioral therapy, only 25% of them are going okay. to have relapse. So cognitive behavioral therapy makes our brains more resistant and more more resistant to depression and, and anxiety too, because of the side effect of cognitive behavioral therapy is still, okay, it also works for anxiety. Uh, so 
So that is a very important part. And what is good about cognitive therapy, if you keep your notes and you help yourself out of the depression to cognitive therapy, the same process, exactly the same process is going to work for your depression for the rest of your life. So keep everybody who is in cognitive therapy, keep your notes. You know that you are getting homework. <laughs> keep that homework. <laughs> it's well, going to be protecting you. On my so, therapy, and I definitely keeping them. So not every therapist allows notes. I just that was for me always my um, my condition for having a, a therapy with this therapist. Like I need to make notes. I think only when I write, and I can't do it any differently. So without every before every session, I always look through my notes. But this is, you know, what I have also noticed that's interesting. Maybe you can explain it better what happens. You know, Marius, sometimes I feel like I either have amnesia or something wrong with me because I read some of my notes and I think, oh my God, like I just, I had it like two, three years ago and I, and I had it in the last session and I feel like it's completely new thing for me. Mm -hmm. So you just keep repeating some stuff because you're not ready. And it's very often therapists are saying that you are not able to digest some things and to make some changes if, you, if you're not ready. How does it work from brain perspective? Because I see that a couple of times, some of the subject, I did talk a couple of times. So I had to go back and go back and go back. So just going through the notes did not help me. So going through the notes does not help because in cognitive therapy, your notes are very in very special format. That in your notes, it is not just a problem, but it's a, and a path to solution and solution. So, so, so that is a very different notes than you take in other forms of therapy. Um, so, it, so if you have, and yes, I agree. First, when we are having a problem, we may have difficulty seeing and believing that there is a solution and and in general there is a actually this morning we had we had a training for moderators for our conference that we we're going to have in warsaw in team cbt and because it requires a lot of practice right you see and the practice so we are training people who are, who are practicing how to teach people to practice right and and, and one of the prerequisites is that we are very open with our mistakes. Then because what? We accept that we are going to make mistakes and so and that is how we learn. So so making mistakes, so that is what David Burns says, uh, fail as fast as you can. Or you know, and or failing forward. You know, we are just we are, we are embracing uh, joyfully making mistakes because that is how you learn yes i do have problem with this a little bit you know because i do i like i'm thinking if you work in nasa and you're sending person to the moon and they say well embrace the mistake then my husband who is in this rocket can die so i don't want him to like gracefully and happily make a mistake i want him to make his shit right so where is a rationalization of this and say, okay, don't feel bad. You made a mistake. We're all humans. Some things you need to do right. If you're a neurosurgeon, I don't want you to make any mistakes and then embrace it and say, oh, that's fine. I'm just human. I want you to do it right. So where is so, the line, uh, uh, Marius? So the line is here. 
first of all, that is a training program. So we are training people here. And also, when you talk about, I have friends in JetBlue Partial Laboratory. So, and I know that they do a lot of mistakes. My God. They make a lot of mistakes. But by the time they are sending humans in their rockets, they made possibly all possible mistakes <laughs> already. And they eliminate them. That is how that works. Science works that way. That we are, you know, that is a very important. We are all wrong. We are all wrong. The only matter is to what degree. If we allow ourselves to make mistakes, we can discover where we are wrong. Because if so, and yes, and I understand that you don't want that, but before that rocket was uh, shot to the sky and to the, uh, and to the, that before it goes over there, there are multiple tests, tests and checks and retests yeah, I and understand tests. That. But in the so end, that, I don't want to make any mistakes, Marius. Of and course. From this perspective, it means that I have to choose a doctor who is extremely experienced, so he's not going to make a mistake on me or my baby when he's curing us, correct? So very important. So let's talk about that. If we assume that people are not making mistakes, they are going to make mistakes. So we need to know that the surgeon is, go is prone to making mistakes. That is why we have checklists. That we have checklists to make sure that we go through each step properly. That is after surgery, you are counting everything that was used during that surgery, that we don't leave an instrument in the person's body, right? So because of what? Many mistakes were done. So accepting the fact that we're humans and as much as we want to be perfect, we cannot be perfect. And, we can and that is the reason we need to plan for the fact that we can make mistakes and put checkpoints that the, okay. if, if there is a mistake, it's going to be fixed, right? First, that the mistakes are prevented because we have propensity to make those mistakes. Yeah. And if we make mistakes, we catch it early on. And that is a very important, and actually in medicine this is very important, and we do that because inevitably mistakes are, are, are made. We need to be transparent with our mistakes. And for example, you know, I'm uh, involved in different, I'm also the chairman of the Department of Psychiatry at Long Beach Memorial. So, uh, so I'm involved in a lot of uh, check and balances of of when mistakes are happening, what's how the hospital responds. If we are transparent, then we are not going to be covering up these mistakes. We are going to be open. For example, medication errors. It is a great example. Medication errors happen, but most of them never reach the patient because we have so many check, checks and balances. So, so but if we were if we were hiding them because we are be, because we would be afraid of being blamed, we would never learn about them. We need to embrace our error proneness, and only this way. And we are transparent about it. Only this way we can we can uh, we can learn. And for example, we have visitations from accrediting companies and accrediting bodies, and they say, and and we, for example, would have a zero medication errors, nobody would believe us. 
Okay, so we need to know how many errors we do, what type of errors these were, how they were addressed, how systems are being changed to prevent those errors in the future. So getting to the beginning of our conversation, when I'm thinking, if I'm a person who is have cancer or God forbids my baby have cancer, and then I know humans are not perfect. So my doctors are not perfect. I cannot really control my disease because there's like, it's my body. There's, I can try, but it's, it's still in the end of the day. It's not my decision. Medications are not perfect and you don't know how they're going to work with my body. Where is hope and do we need to have hope to feel better? Yeah, thank you. Hope is very important our process. So, so let's, uh, uh, so very important when someone is diagnosed with cancer or your child is diagnosed with cancer, we strongly recommend that you have second, third, or even fourth opinion, right? And most often you are going to be told the same thing because in oncology treatment is usually driven by by protocols, right? So, so if you have that type of cancer, these organs are involved. It is so advanced. These are the these these treatments have been validated uh, in research that are most effective. And so most likely you are going to hear the same thing. If it is, unless it is very rare uh, illness and we don't have much of the evidence to go by. On the other hand, uh, so second, but what is important about second opinion is that you may hear it differently. You may understand it differently. So even if it is the same advice, but maybe said it a different way, uh, it may sink in uh, better. Uh, so that is one aspect of it. Uh, so yes, and also because people make mistakes, the first doctor may not have the best advice. So yes, so having second, third opinion is, is very important, particularly if someone has recurrence of disease. Uh, the second part, uh, so, so you see what hope is, right? <laughs> the, hope is very much related to trust. Wait a second, because my baby is getting crazy and I need to tell Fergus to be quiet. Wait. Okay. Peace Take already. your time. Take yeah. your time. My love, I'm going to your last. Mama. Where this time of course. them okay. Uh, yeah. I remember our oldest daughter when she, she, she nobody could really quiet her but her mom. So so yeah. So I I know I know uh, how Fergus may feel. <laughs> how okay. inadequate. But tell me, uh, what is it? Uh, yeah. So very important part here is. Uh, related to hope is trust, right? There is a Arab saying, trust Allah, but tie your camel to a tree. So uh, trust, but verify. So that means that it is important that we do our own homework, right? Mm -hmm. So, so yes, we need to trust. And now, since you asked me about hope, there is a lot of misunderstanding about hope. 
you see, when Simonton was was talking about his approach, and there is no much evidence for what he was saying, you know, it is very tough to be a pioneer in any field, right? Yes. It, it's it's better to have a tenured position when you're a pioneer, but he didn't, so. <laughs> Well, uh, it has to be apprentice, but somebody has to do the job and the same, yeah. you know. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so he was very often criticized that he is giving people false hope, and and he was giving he was invited to, to give lectures in different universities, but primarily the goal was to really discredit him uh, very often, uh, and and he would say, "Okay, you are saying that I'm giving people false hope, but." First, tell me what hope is, and then we will see if I'm giving people false hope. Mm-hmm. You see, in medical schools or in psychology schools or nursing schools, we are not taught what hope is, right? Yeah. But we are all taught never give people false hope, right? Yeah. So we are. So we never discuss what hope is, but at the same time, everybody tells you don't give people false hope, yeah. right? And so, so he, and of course, his audience, nobody knew what hope was. So he would use the, the, the Webster Dictionary definition that hope is a belief that what I desire I can achieve, right? that, that what I desire is achievable. Right? And that is, uh, that is a beautiful definition. That means that that it is possible for me to achieve it, that I can achieve it, not that I will achieve it. Now, I will achieve it would be positive thinking, which is not hope. Hope is that there is a possibility for me. Even when there, my probabilities are low, I can still achieve what I desire. Right? It is possible to achieve. This is the yes. key. We said it is possible to achieve. But, you know, it's not only the doctors are not being taught like this, but it's important how humans, how patients understands that. So many mm-hmm. patients also do not know of definition of hope. So it's important to have this education on a spot, what actually they need to believe in, that it's not yes. will happen, but it is possible that it will happen. Yeah, so... so- so and 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 we didn't talk, we touched upon uh, attachment and non-attachment. So, uh, so so this definition of hope has in it already built in non-attachment to the outcome. That means because attachment to the outcome in the case of illness is I have to get well, I should get well. The should those the treatments have to be effective, right? And and we know that the world does not work that way. Um, uh, but yes, but as we know, we can get well. So for majority of cancers, people can get well, right? Uh, regardless of how advanced they are. 68%. Uh, pardon? 68% of people. 68%. Uh, so, and listen, and these are old people, because remember, to look at those data, these are old data, right? People who are diagnosed now, they have much better outcomes. So, but their outcomes we will know in 10, 15 years. So, so that, that, that is very different from what we do now. Uh, so, so actually, we don't know what, is, what are going to be the outcomes of people who are treated now. But again, statistics are just generalization and just abstracts. These not concrete things. Like statistics apply to populations, not individuals. So, if any of you are dealing, of our listeners are dealing with 
uh, with any serious illness. Very important that that whatever you heard about statistics, it does not apply to you. It applies to, popu to the population, and it is based on old data because yeah. you don't have that data. Well, what we're saying basically that it's important. We have, you quoted before research that it's if you take care of your quality of your life here and now, you will get better. Your chance of remission are less. And in order to take care of yourself here and now, you need to have a hope because you need to like to have motivation to do it. This is how we we connect this together, right? Yes. So. Yeah, but at the same time, if someone feels hopeless, I don't want them to feel hopeless because they are hopeless. Yeah. Hopelessness is not a bad emotion, really. Hmm. Hopelessness is not opposite of hope. Now, people, most people don't know this, but you see, we never are hopeless about things we don't care about. Mm-hmm. So when I'm hopeless about something, that means that I care about something a lot. So I prefer to work with a hopeless patient because I know that they care than an apathetic patient. You need to help me on maybe on example to see the difference between hopelessness pa patient and, and an apathetic patient. What is, okay. like, so can you give me the way how they think about their disease? Okay, so... A pathetic patient is I don't care. Nothing matters, right? And why? And, and actually, apathy is a form of protest, right? I don't agree with something. And that is, you can see with young people who are uh, diagnosed with yeah. uh, serious illnesses that then became apathetic, but it is because they are protesting something and they don't have. A, a way of protesting openly, so the apathy is this silent protest. Mm -hmm. Why hopelessness is really uh, uh, hopelessness reveals that we care, right? That something is important for me. Yes, I do care, but I simply don't believe that I can get there. And it is much easier to do, to work with. How do you work with this? How do you get? Well, out first of all, to 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 emphasize the how this hopelessness is appropriate how how it is appropriate for this particular situation, how it makes sense for the person to feel hopeless, and what the values it, this hopelessness expresses. For example, hopelessness expresses is so expression of self-love, right? Mm. Why? Because it, it protects me from disappointment. Mm -hmm. So when I'm hopeless, I'm protecting myself from being disappointed. Uh, and when I'm hopeless, uh, also what it means that I'm, I have the courage to look at difficult aspects of my life, right? So I value courage. I value honesty. I value reality. I want to be realistic, right? I don't want to be Pollyannish. Uh, and also... If I'm hopeless, but I still do what needs to be done, that is heroism, right? Because it is very easy to do what needs to be done in comparison when I know that the outcomes are going to be the, the desirable outcome of what I'm working towards. But if I'm doing things that are needed to be done uh, and don't believe that I can achieve it, it is through heroism. 
So, 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 so with these patients, that is very important that we are really focusing on the present moment, on the here and now, right? Because there are ways for them to improve the quality of the of their lives in the moment. They, there are methods that work right away, immediately. So, so with these methods, they could, we can show them. Okay, we don't know your outcome, right? So again, that is, if we put the outcome away, we, we, then, then working with hopelessness is not a problem, right? Because, because we are now focusing on on the present time. Mm-hmm. And so, and then, and then, uh, when they see that, oh wow, I can do a lot to improve my quality of life in the present moment, then they. They are shifting their attitude, and you know. So, so really, installation of hope is, as Yalom used to say, is very important in treatment. But at the same time, let's not lose hope that the patient can improve, even if they are having feelings of hopelessness. Right? <laughs> what is Mariusz? What is the difference? Because this is you already mentioned that this is really important for me to understand. What is the difference between hope, the way you described? Like we have. We believe that there is a chance, there is a possibility that even if the um, predictions are not great, it is possible to be better. Mm-hmm. From positive thinking or something that I call pop hippie psychology. So this obsession about um, affirmation and even so you feel, I don't know, sick, you're saying, oh, I'm healthy, I'm good, uh, I, you know, to make it everything in the present tense whatever you desire um, because we do know that visualization obviously helps because it, we do already have proof of this visualization and metaphors to help but where is the line that like we we often feed people with the positive thinking and becomes really a huge pressure of this so when I'm saying I, I feel scared somebody said don't like just think positive don't think about the death don't think about what happened to you think positive and you just sometimes do not want to, f- you, you don't think positive, you don't want to feel positive, and people make you to do it positive. So what do you think about this positive thinking and about power of affirmation that everybody feel that they can cure cancer and everything with affirmations? Okay, so thank you very much for giving me this opportunity uh, uh, to address this. So first of all, affirmations are not really specific for us, uh, general, general. So it is much better if you go through the cognitive behavior model and in each cognitive behavior therapy, you come with certain beliefs and and thoughts, conditions uh, that you that were unhealthy, and then you convert them into healthy beliefs, right? Uh, and in Mosby's model, we call them five rules for healthy thinking, but there are also, you know, the ways to do identify cognitive distortions or irrational attitudes, uh, you know, like demandingness, you know, catastrophizing, uh, seven other rate, rating, ratings and so on, worth ratings. And so, so there are different different forms of cognitive behavior therapy, so a little bit different form of assessing the whether they think is healthy or not, but, but eventually you come with a healthy thought, which is specific for you, which is specific for your previously unhealthy thoughts. And why it's why uh, affirmations are just general. They are, not, they, they are not specific. And actually, they may undermine things. And so there is this tyranny of being positive, right? Mm. 
Oh, and that is actually very difficult for our patients. Everybody tells me that I need to stay positive. No, you need to be stay authentic. So on one hand, we have this tyranny. We sometimes call it a conspiracy of positive thinking, right? Uh, why conspiracy? It is such a conspiracy that even the conspirators don't know that they are participating in it because in our culture, this positivity is so ingrained that that everybody is very much willing player of that that conspiracy that that oh patients want to be positive because uh, he or she doesn't or they don't want to disappoint uh, their caregivers or the family so they are playing along family is positive in front of the patient so they you know so they are and and you know very often caregivers and and the treatment team oh yes everybody stays positive but that causes the patient to not being able to to share their feelings, right? The patient is not able to really share their concerns, certain difficult thoughts because they, oh, don't talk like that. Oh, I'm afraid that I'm going to die. You, you'll never die, right? So, so it, it is they are being placated with those platitudes about you know, uh, you know, and this is very, very, very um, isolating. And then because people cannot share openly their feelings they cannot share what they would like to do if their health deteriorated so there is no discussion about how i want to be treated if i end up in icu and i end up on belt ventilator or do i even want to be in the, on the ventilator right so that may and i may end up receiving a lot of futile care that is against my will if someone spent some time to listen to me when i was really afraid what's going to happen to me if I die, right? Or if I will be dying. But nobody wanted to talk to me about it because everybody wanted to stay positive. So, so, uh, um, so yeah, we are teaching healthy thinking, not positive. Yeah, you know, I, I remember when I broke my backbone in parachute accident and for the first day I just told two of my, uh, my, my one of my friends and my client because I knew I'm not capable of of telling people that everything's going to be okay because everybody's going to be scared and I have to just be strong or listen to everyone saying be strong where I did not feel like being strong, you know, mm -hmm. and I did not want to do that. So that's why I think I, I never regretted that I did not tell anyone. I just, I, I wanted first to be strong enough to handle their emotions because everybody, like I predicted, either were whining how horrible it is what happened and I feel like I have to comfort them or telling me this bullshit, everything's going to be okay. Like, how could you know? My doctors does not know. What do you, like, you know, fairy tale, you're going to make it all right? You're not. It's so crazy. it's, you know, I just hate things that mean nothing. You know, if you don't know, this is first lesson I remember from our uh, psychology classes. Never tell patients something you cannot keep the promise. Do not tell him everything is going to be okay because you don't know. Like, exactly. and, and, and it's horrible that people just have this, like, need to tell positive thing and make you be positive when sometimes that's, like, that's adequate situation not to be positive and not, like, to be scared and to think, well, it is a chance I will die and I want to talk about this. It's real chance that I'm not going to walk. I want to talk about this. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. So, so yeah. So giving people space, and I think that telling people to be positive is easier for us as caregivers, right? Yeah. Uh, so we are really cheering ourselves up, not the person uh, needing cheering up. So when uh, we are so, uh, so yes, and you said something that is very important. Uh, when you feel, when you feel like you don't have the strength, and I think that that actually the true strength is when we can become vulnerable. And in that moment, when we are becoming vulnerable, we can we can really understand ourselves. Yeah. And allow other people to help us understand ourselves. Because very often we need to, in order to understand ourselves, it is very often in relation with someone else, you know, maybe helpful. And so, so, and if there's someone who can be with us during that moment, it's huge. Someone who will not try to cheer us up. Someone, someone who could be present with us the way we are is huge but we have the instinct of of cheering people up helping them you know stay positive or whatever but in fact that is we undervalue the importance of our presence and our presence is very often what is the most valuable not our words never words i absolutely agree with you but what what can you if hope is so important, and from what you said, it is important to believe that it is possible to be better. And you have a situation when the person you love is sick, and it's not in a situation when he has hope. So how can you accept what he feels and just be present and not to push him uh, like into this positivity, but also giving him hope and help him to turn from this black side into seeing the light in the end of the tunnel so uh, so one of the very important thing is that we think of hope I'm hoping that it is something out there in the future that is very clear and very specific but yes it may be that we can have specific hope right uh, like we hope that our recording is going to work out and Fergus is not going to have much problem in editing it, right? <laughs> uh, so so th that is one hope. But you see, we may have many different hopes at the same time. And so because hope is wise, really, and hope evolves, and hope ca has capacity for a lot of different things. So... So that is very important that we talk about hope in very uh, specific terms. Because, for example, when I'm diagnosed with cancer, I may hope that I will be cured and it will never come back, right? That is one hope. But at the same time, I may hope that if I cannot be cured, I may be treated and that cancer can be controlled and I can live my life as fully as possible. And then, and then, if that is not possible, right, that if I die soon, I may hope that that between now and my, the moment of my death, I can spend as much time with my family, 
I can do as much uh, things that I really truly enjoy. And in the moment of my death, I will be surrounded by people who love me and I am going to be comfortable and free of pain. So how do we help person to see this? So if we have somebody on the other side who feels at this moment, he just find out he has cancer or any other serious disease, how do we give the support where we don't push him into positivity, but in the same time, we help him to get hope? What exactly do we do? So first, at at the very beginning, there's a time of shock. So we need to let the person process that element, right? So again, everything comes to our presence and our listening, right? And and here we are. We have difficult, different different ways of of listening, right? And just being there. But David Burns developed really wonderful method for for listening, which is called Five Secrets of Effective Communication, right? And and the first secret is is disarming. What we disarming means that because the person who just learned about such a serious illness, they may have all types of emotions, and they all are right. So there is no wrong emotion, right, in the face of such a diagnosis. And and yeah, and and finding and and listening to that person, and then we can. So the first is disarming, and then we talk about empathy and there's thought empathy which is really reflecting back what the patient is saying and also emotional empathy what emotions they are sharing next element is inquiry we can we can if, if we reflect it back we can say am i getting you right and that and that opens them up for sharing more right so we continue with that and and then there is an element of of my I feel statement that how I feel in this situation that I can honestly say, say, okay, I also feel, I actually, I may, I feel helpless. I really don't know what to say. Right. Um, and I'm really sad that it is, and I'm angry too, that, that is happening to you. Right. And whatever we, but we need to say whatever we feel at the moment, it is very important that you're authentic. And then the last part is is in these five secrets is, is stroking, right? So, uh, stroking is when we say that that but you know whatever we can see this person is doing well, you know they are angry that we can can say, but I'm happy that you're standing up for yourself, right? Um, uh, if the person is sad because of the loss of function or you know. I can see how much you value those things that you are able to do and, you know, and, and that you love so much and you love your life and health so much, right? So, so whatever is the emotion is, we can also reflect what type of a value this emotion is, is expressing. So that's just how we can stroke. And how do we support ourselves in this situation? Because when we have somebody sick, it's also when one person is sick, like whole system is sick. Yeah. So we need also to take care of ourselves in order to yeah. take care of somebody else. So we parents first means not only for parents. How do we take care of the patient's family? How do this family take care of themselves? Because very often 
what I what mothers of handicapped children, for example, or sick children are saying that they feel most guilty and they feel judged if they go for manicure or do the hair and somebody say, how could you do this if your child is sick? But they said, well, I still need to be alive. I still need to do something for myself, not to be only in the sickness and many people judging them for them. So first question is, is it important for take for person who takes care to take care of herself too, of himself? And how can this person do this? So like, how can she find or he find energy for giving it to somebody who is sick, but also to herself? Yeah. So they can find this way in, uh, in the, there's a specific process in this, in the, some of the program, right? We call it beat the odds that you can have here, beat the odds, right? And in our program, we have a special session for support people. And the first assignment is, you see, cancer uh, or, or disability or other things, these are, these are crises, right? Mm -hmm. and, and in crisis, everybody drops everything and starts to help. But in this case of cancer or, or chronic disability, it is a chronic crisis, right? Mm -hmm. So very important is because if we jump and drop everything, we may stop re recharging our own batteries, right? Yeah. And when we don't recharge our own batteries, we can quickly become bitter and burned out and, and not having patience to do things. Mm -hmm. So we encourage all caregivers to stop. Wait. Now, take a conscious effort. Take a piece of paper and write all the different things that you used to do before that crisis that you were using, doing to recharge your batteries, right? And to distress, to to have fun, to um, to experience joy, list everything, right? And take your time. Right? And once you listed everything, now because of the crisis, you won't be able to do all those things. Which which of those things you are going to put on a back burner, and which you are you want to still continue to do. That is a when when this process is done consciously, then we avoid a lot of bitterness, a lot of uh, a lot of burnout. So we, we need to do this process consciously, and once it is done, I put it to the test, <laughs> right, and see how that works. If it works, maybe I can add some things to the things that I do, or maybe I need to still take some off because. But it is very important that I, that I regularly recharge my batteries, that I regularly do things that bring me joy, that I regularly, and here, fun and play, laughter are crucial for that process, are crucial. So we even have the class when we teach people how to laugh when there's nothing to laugh about without jokes and humor. So, so yeah, so that is, um, that is a very important thing. Simon used to say, uh, laughter and play are not electives; are mandatory. So, so because, but at the same time, laughter and play are the first things that we stop doing when we have any problem. Yeah. But laughter and play are giving us energy and creativity. And we have any type of problem, we need creativity and energy, right? So, so laughter and play is the on the top list that we need to do things. 
I was wondering also on the beginning, you said that all this process also like in 73 started that from noticing that, that not only patients needs to have somebody who takes care of them, but also doctors and people who takes care of patients. So do you have in your hospital, the system that everybody is taking care of from psychological perspective? Uh, so we have uh, programs uh, that for caregiving during the, the pandemic uh, that that is what happened that during the pandemic uh, in the burnout the monk staff was so high that that uh, they were implemented uh, uh, programs that are still accessible to physicians and uh, other staff members uh, to address their burnout yes so we have that but uh, you see there's still stigma of uh, seeking help, particularly among physicians. Uh, we are so <laughs> we we live shorter lives than our patients. So it shows that physicians are not the good examples of healthy, <laughs> healthy no, lives. I feel like it, in Poland there is a problem that the way you describe the how you take care of patients is because we also know know each other privately and talk about this I always very impressed and I thinking if like how how beautiful it is for the patient in such a difficult situation to have somebody who really cares and the biggest complaint because me we as a company have a lot of uh, medical clients and so we do a lot of research on the sick people that it's like it's it's an ice wall on a on a from that they feel from the doctors and when I talk with the doctors, I feel like they have completely also burned out because nobody takes care of them. So we have the situation that it's difficult for everyone. It's difficult for the patient because we do not have psychologists usually in a regular hospital who takes care of them. We do not have psychologists who takes care of, of, of doctors, which is a difficult job. Like you have also patients who are dying. It's difficult hours. So it, it is a difficult job. So there is not enough uh, mental support for anybody. So then we have patient who does not have hope because uh, his doctor does not have hope and he's angry and impatient. So this way, what is the chances that we can all get better? So uh, I truly believe that the healthcare system is not going to be changed by healthcare executives. Mm -hmm. It is going to be changed by patients. But... So uh, we need to demand what we want. That is very important. Um, so I'm glad that there are the organizations that that patients can organize themselves and and have a really stronger voice. And but unfortunately, you know, in the United States, for example, the uh, you know uh, pharmaceutical industry has more lobbyists. Uh, I think there's twice as many lobbies than congressmen, right? So congress people. Uh, so for each congressperson, we have <laughs> we have two lobbyists, right? Uh, from the just pharmaceutical industry, right? So, uh, uh, but at the same time, we are coming to that stoic philosophy, right? Mm. We, yes, it is important to accept that it is the system. But at the same time, we need to work towards changing the system, uh, and you know, do you know, like you are talking about Poland? You know, I'm doing 
what I can do. I do my piece. I'm bringing the best the psychotherapy trainers I know uh, to teach Polish therapists and Ukrainian therapists uh, these effective methods that are empathy-based, right? Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy, but it's empathy-based. It's open to the person. So, um, so that is one thing. But another thing is talking about what we talk about right now. That this is that what happens is the 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 greatest thing about burnout and and the negative aspects of what it brings to the helper positions, right? So it is also attachment to the outcome because look, when you are graduating from psychology school, medical school, nursing school, you know, uh, or seminary, you want to help people, right? You think that, oh yes, now I'm going to help everyone. And even if you went to the best schools, even if you had the best tools, you are not going to help everyone, right? Even those those who had good prognosis. So what will happen is that 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 you quickly are going if you are attached to the outcome, you are going to be very disappointed. And in overworked medical profession, particularly in Poland, when there is the shortest of physicians, these things are uh, compiled, and and you're in a hurry because you know you have a lot of patients waiting somewhere for you, right? Always, uh, and you are not satisfied with how you practice medicine because of that pressure, uh, then uh, the patients are not improving the way you expect them. So very quickly, from so you have so many disappointments that you want to protect yourself from it. So from attachment, you go to detachment. Mm-hmm. And when you happen to be detached, it is, you know, it is what? It is... Uh, it, it, the, and we all met, not just physicians, but also you know other helping professionals who who became detached. When you talk to them, it is like talking to the glass pane. Yeah. You you know, like you are not connecting with them, right? Like they don't care. Like there's they are aloof, withdrawn, or in, in extreme cases, cynical, sarcastic, and nihilistic. And cynicism and sarcasm are are signs of burnout, right? So that is what we teach. We teach non-attachment, that I balance caring, engagement, involvement with being non-attached. That means I do my best here and now what I can. And I'm basing my interventions on the best science that I can have, the best evidence. But at the same time, I know that I don't control the situation and the outcome may be different. So. so to summarize what we need to do in order to have hope and to be healthy or to cure whatever disease that we have, we need to have a lot of sleep, good food, sex, love, fun, play, and no alcohol so you can remember and enjoy fully here and now. And in the meantime, you can also meditate because that's also good for you to remind just here and now is all we have. So yes. thank you so much for um, spending your time sharing your knowledge, your wisdom, your laugh, and uh, your jokes. So I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's always a pleasure with you. And thank you to all the listeners and viewers. So across the country and around the world. Yes, Bye-bye. and we hope nobody's going to get sick and will uh, we'll, we'll not actually need this advice from Mariusz. Just for every yeah. day, broken heart or something for small things. No chemo. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank bye you bye. So much.